want to turn in your Bible, you can to Matthew chapter 6, which is where um, the scripture reading that you just did, uh, whether you realized it or not, I think you probably did, um, and slash the Lord's Prayer is. That's what we're um, going to be looking at again today. We are wrapping up our six-week series uh, on the Lord's Prayer as part of our 40 Days of Prayer series this year. If this is your first year with us, um, I know some of you, this is your first January with us. Uh, this is a tradition. This has become a tradition for us as we sort of participate along with our Greater Alliance family um, at the start of each year. Now, if you are newer with us, I just want to reemphasize again, today after we're done here, we're going to do pizza with me, yours truly, um, and we'll just spend about an hour or so where I'm going to share about our Alliance family. So when I say the Alliance, you'll know what that means uh, after pizza with the pastor today, and then I'll share a little bit of our church in particular. Uh, so if you can make that happen, please do it. Um, I can't promise you that there's going to be a ton of pizza uh, for all of us, because I'm not sure how many of us are going to show up, but we should at least all get a piece of pepperoni, okay? So if you can stay for that, I want to invite you to stay for that if you're newer, um, and just uh, wanted to do, invite you to that. And also wanted to, for all of us, just give us a bit of a map of where we're headed as we uh, look down the road towards the spring and Easter. Um, and I'm, I got to say, hey guys, I'm glad, I'm so glad to see you guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, now I just, now I just killed all the momentum. It's okay. I didn't have any. Um, just want to give you a bit of a map of where we're kind of headed as a church over the next few weeks as we head towards spring and Easter. Um, as part of the process of reestablishing, uh, our church as an accredited church within the Christian Missionary Alliance, um, with, you know, that like long two and a half year break that we took because of COVID. You remember that? Right. Um, we're aiming at finalizing that process by Easter Sunday uh, this year. So that's only a few weeks away. That's April 9th. Um, and just in case you forgot, the week before that is April 1st, which is my birthday. So just now you're ready. Um, but that's the second Sunday in April. So that's that's Easter Sunday is the second Sunday of April. And so starting next week, all of us, I'm going to just do a four week series uh, with a little break in the middle there. We're going to be walking through what we in the Alliance call the fourfold gospel. Now, if you're a died in the wool alliance person you've heard this before but it's good to hear it again uh, this is who we are as uh, a movement this is one of our core things and so uh, the fourfold gospel is really just our christology it's what we believe about who jesus is uh, that he's savior he's sanctifier he's healer and he is our coming king so for those four weeks we're going to walk through that just to kind of get us all like this we've all had the alliance 101 stuff right um, and then uh, for the three weeks after that, leading up to Easter, we're going to just take time again to just go over our mission and our vision as a church. Uh, so one week on mission, one week on vision, uh, and then we're going to talk about church structure, which I know doesn't sound exciting, but it actually is kind of exciting uh, because it, it protects all of us and it's good for all of us and it's a gift from God. And so... Uh, and then we'll celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead on Easter. And then, Lord willing, we will be able to also celebrate that day, our church moving from this status of redevelopment back into full accrediting as an Alliance Church. Now, some of you are like, accredited? What in the world is that? Uh, if that's you, pizza with the pastor today. I'll explain it, okay? And you'll get pizza, um, or at least a tiny slice. And so, over these next eight weeks or so, as I said, we're going to be talking about all this stuff 
during our time together on Sunday. So if, if there's a, a chunk of the year where you're like, I'm going to really do attendance every week, it's this between now and Easter. Uh, there's a lot of stuff for us uh, to get together. And so uh, since we are doing uh, pizza with me today, I'm going to try to be a little more succinct. Uh, than usual, and so just have a bit more time for the conversation uh, over pizza. So Matthew 6, verse 13 is where we're going to be today. And if you were here last week, uh, you might be thinking, wait a minute, we covered that last week, right? We covered the lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Um, and, and you're right. But then others of you, depending on what type of church experience you might have had and what translation of the Bible you may have had, you might have been wondering this whole time why in our recitation of the Lord's Prayer each week, we haven't been saying that part at the end that you might have memorized. If you have it in the King James memorized, yeah, some of you are like, yeah, what, what happened to that? Okay, here's Matthew 6, 13 in the New American Standard Version. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I should have said thine, right? That would have been better, yeah. So maybe some of you are wondering about that, and so today we're going to talk through that a little bit. Now, if you were to go and get a bunch of different translations of the Bible, and if you'd like to have a very fun for me but very nerdy conversation, let's talk about Bible translation and how that works and what ones we recommend and all that. Uh, and if you'd like to even go deeper, you could talk to Bob about that because I'm sure he's... <laughs> He would even love that even more than me. Uh, but if, you've, if you get a bunch of different translations, you'll notice that in some, like the English Standard Version, which is the, the blue Bibles that you have under the seats, and the version that we used on the screen today, that one does not include uh, this phrase, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. But some translations do include it. So what's the deal with that, right? So this phrase, this little section, for yours is the kingdom, is technically what we would call a doxology. Okay, it's a doxology. That word simply means to speak a word of praise uh, in a kind of real generic, uh, simple um, um, definition. And so a doxology in the Christian faith is a word of praise to God, right? It's a word of praise to God. And so uh, here's what's interesting about this doxology in Matthew 6. Most scholars, people who study this stuff would tell you that this is probably not spoken by Christ and it's not part of the original Lord's Prayer, okay? So that's why some translations leave it out. Uh, and here's several reasons for it. It doesn't appear in any of the oldest manuscripts for the Gospel of Matthew. So as, as Matthew uh, you know, verbally told his Gospel to a scribe who wrote it down and then copies were made, those oldest manuscripts that we have don't have this little uh, for yours is the kingdom part. Uh, it seems that it was added uh, at the time of the first or the second century. So really early on, right? It's not like it was added a long time later. Um, but the earliest references to this little doxology are in what's called the Didache, uh, or, or it's the teaching of the 12 apostles. Have you ever heard the word didactic, meaning teaching? The Didache is a book of teaching of the 12 apostles. Uh, so it's the that's sort of the first extra biblical writing containing the teachings of the earliest church, right? It's like Lifeway 1.0. Uh, that's what the Didache is. That was a nerdy joke. Nobody got it. Move on. Okay, in the Didache, uh, where it reproduces the Lord's Prayer, it adds the words, for thine is the power and the glory forever. Pray thus three times a day. So that's in the Didache, not the Bible, but it's a uh, you know, a, a book written by people in the church who were like, hey, here's the Lord's Prayer. And they added this little phrase at the end, and then, hey, pray this three times a day, right? And so a scholar who's done a lot of work on the Lord's Prayer named Ernst Lohmeyer, 
he says that this doxology was included because of the Jewish custom of ending all daily prayers with a brief doxology, a brief word of praise. And so he, he is of the mind that the Jewish Christians in Syria were the first to begin to repeat the Lord's Prayer daily and then adding this customary edition of a doxology. And then they added it to their versions of the New Testament, which then kind of spread and it gets into uh, some of the translations that we have. And so I think that makes good sense. I think from a literary point of view, you can also see why this was kind of naturally included, becomes part of your prayer life, right? Uh, it, so it adds an appropriate conclusion to the prayer even though we have to say it's unlikely that Jesus spoke these words in the gospel of Matthew ending his prayer this way. Now, here, here's what we need to keep in mind that, that kind of helps with like, wait a minute, is, uh, this seems weird. Jesus is not giving you an incantation in this prayer. He's not telling you, pray these magic words and God will do what you want. Um, there's movies that have that in it. Um, and, and there's all kinds of cultural things where we kind of treat prayer like that, right? Uh, but Jesus is teaching us how to think about prayer, how to live a life of prayer. And he's giving us a framework for which to pray, right? He's giving us a trellis onto which the vine of our prayer life can, can live. And so what that means is that what we actually uh, have is quite a bit of freedom to pray words that differ from the exact words in the prayer of Jesus. And so then it follows then that it makes sense that adding a word of praise to the end of this prayer is not wrong. It's not wrong for the early Christians to have done that. In fact, if some of us think that what is important is these exact specific words, like they're the magic words, uh, when you speak them, like they're somehow the words themselves is where the power is, uh, then I want to invite you just to, if you've got your Bible, scroll your eyes up a little bit. Uh, or if you've got it on a digital copy, scroll up a little bit to verse 7 of Matthew 6. Just a few verses before this. This is Jesus teaching about prayer as well. And when you pray, do not heap up empty, pray, empty phrases as the Gentiles do. This isn't magic incantations. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. In some church traditions, it's the amount of times you say a prayer that gives it its power, right? And while those traditions have beautiful things in them, this is Jesus' teaching. Don't be like that. Why? For your father, who he's going to teach us to call Abba, intimate father, he knows what you need before you ask him. But then he still goes on and says, but still, when you pray, because you still should pray, because it's more about you than it is about changing him. Here's how you pray. So if you think that the Lord's Prayer is about getting the words just right because that's the way you get God to do what you want, you're missing the entire teaching from Jesus on prayer. That's not what he was trying to get to. So the Lord's Prayer is a model. It's an outline. It's a framework for what our prayers should contain. And it's a call for us to become the kind of people who pray this way. And so there's nothing wrong with this additional praise and doxology in keeping with the spirit of the prayer as long as you're not imagining that Jesus said those words. So just so you know that Jesus didn't say it. Actually, this doxology is scriptural in the sense that variations of it are found numerous times in the Bible. All right? The Old Testament contains what many believe is the model from which this doxology is condensed. Here's 1 Chronicles 29. David is giving thanks before the people, and he says this, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. 
Yours, O Lord, listen to the similarity. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. So that little doxology in Matthew is a sort of condensed version of that prayer from David. So it isn't in the scripture per se in that spot, but it comes from the scripture. In my mind, I sort of put this doxology in the same category as I might put uh, one of the creeds in. Very valuable tool given to us by the church, not part of our Bible, still really good. Okay? In the New Testament, we see that the words of the four living creatures uh, have this same theme in Revelation 5. They say, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Yeah, we might have sang that today, didn't we? So the doxology here is scriptural in content, and what we have in its sort of uh, in, in this, if you want to say, unscriptural addition at the end of the Lord's Prayer is really the, the right reaction for the church to praying the Lord's Prayer. In, if you're praying this kind of prayer in your heart, with your, with your heart turned towards the Lord, then this doxology is sort of the, the joy-filled declaration of somebody who has truly prayed this prayer. Yours is the kingdom, Lord. Yours is the power, O God, and yours is the glory forever. Amen. Right? That's a great way to close this prayer. It's a model of the heart response of the one who truly enters into the Lord's prayer. It's the song of the heart that prays according to this template, this pattern, this framework of prayer. So let's just break down this little doxology as we wrap up our series today. We're going to start with yours is the kingdom. So what's the sort of fundamental underlying meaning behind saying to somebody, hey, this is your kingdom. What are you implying? You're the king, right? God is king. We see this all over the scriptures. We saw it in that text I read from David's praise. Yours is the kingdom is a joy-filled uh, affirmation of the sovereignty of God, of his sovereign rule and reign. And in this little phrase, we are affirming that he is both all-knowing and all-powerful. That he is omniscient and he is omnipotent. Uh, listen to the way A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, put it, required reading, especially because he's an alliance theologian so and pastor, so you should read that book. Uh, but he says this in this book, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. Because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing. That line got me. He knows no single thing better than he knows any other single thing because he knows all things. He knows all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised, even with your foolishness and my foolishness. He's never like, oh, I can't believe it. That's, he's never had that feeling. He's never amazed and he never wonders about anything, right? And for us, he never Googles anything, okay? 
But then this phrase also, if you, if you wrap your mind around this, it also affirms that God is absolutely free. He is beyond human experience. He transcends our experience and our understanding. Our earthly analogies fall short of this, right? What's, a, what's one of those analogies we often use? Somebody as free as a bird, right? Free as a bird, which seems pretty free, but it's not when you compare it to God's freedom. Predators, food, the weather, right? Keep birds in a type of bondage like you and me in this world. And we're no more free than that, right? And, and we're even less free than that because we have the bondage of sin on top of the bondage of all those other things. Only God is actually free. The scriptures say he lives in the heavens and he does what he pleases. He is free. He can do what he pleases, when he pleases, as he pleases. He is not even in the bondage of past experience like you and I, right? You're, you're not actually free in the sense of being fully free. Uh, let me give you an example. I went on a roller coaster one time a long time ago, and it made me sick. So now I don't feel very free about roller coasters. Why? Because that past experience puts something on me, right? He is king, though. He can do anything he wants whenever he wants. And so yours is the kingdom not only affirms his sovereign kingship, but it declares, we're declaring when we say that little addition to the Lord's Prayer, that he is king even right now. All of us, right, and this is me, for me, we have trouble believing that he's king right now a lot. Right? This last couple weeks at the schools at Lansdowne have made me be like, Lord, come on. Kids are stabbing each other in school. We're finding bodies behind a school right on this street. Lord, like, what's up? And so everywhere we look, it seems that what wins is brute strength and particularly brute strength that's motivated, motivated by less than holy ideals, right? I would point you to any war going on in the world right now. Napoleon, speaking of war, once recorded, is once recorded as saying it this way, I have observed that God is always on the side of the strongest battalions. Right? It's convenient when you're the strongest one. Yeah. Pontius Pilate had the same perspective. You don't know who that is. He was uh, the ruler of the part of the Roman Empire where Jesus lived at the time of his crucifixion. And he stood there, if you know the story, with the power of Rome behind him. And Jesus stood there, a tortured nobody, who would soon be killed by the state, by the power of Rome, wrongly. And so when Jesus said in that moment, in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world, Pilate would have no idea what Jesus was talking about. Pilate's like, what are you talking about? This is power. This is the true kingdom. And Jesus is like, oh, you, you don't understand. And so the truth is, Pilate was the captive. And Jesus was the free person in that scenario. If you don't see Jesus as king and you haven't experienced his kingdom, if you don't see Jesus as king in your life and you haven't experienced what it means to be living in his kingdom, it's because your, your perspective is off. You're standing in the wrong spot. Um, just a few streets down from here is Lansdowne United Methodist Church. Uh, great folks over there. 
Um, Pastor Dane doing a great job leading that congregation. Uh, pray, we pray for them. If you don't pray for them, we should. We pray for the churches in our neighborhood. And one of the things you'll notice if you ever drive by there is that they have a beautiful stained glass window of the great shepherd Jesus. It's one of my favorite things in our neighborhood. Uh, but here's the thing. If you're on the outside, it's not that impressive. You're like, eh, you know, I guess there's stained glass there, but you kind of just drive by. Um, it doesn't look good from the outside, but if you go inside and you see the stained glass, the way it was intended to be seen, particularly on a sunny day where there's a lot of light coming in, it will blow your mind. It is incredibly beautiful. That particular stained glass, I love it because of Jesus being the great shepherd. And so anytime I've been invited to that building for a meeting or a prayer time or uh, anything like that, a VBS, I'll, I'll always sneak in the sanctuary and I'll just sit in a, pew, in a pew for a little while and just take a peek at that stained glass. Why? Because it's beautiful from the inside. See, the mystery and the beauty of God's kingdom can really only be fully appreciated from the inside of that kingdom. From within the kingdom, we can declare yours is the kingdom and know that it's coming and that eventually everyone will see it for all of its beauty upon the return of Jesus on whom the name is inscribed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so this realization makes all the difference in the way that we live. Not only do we believe that Jesus is in control as king, he is king, but we also realize that we will answer to him. We will answer to him. And so we live then as if Jesus is king and as if his kingdom is already present because it is and because we know that it's coming. So we say yours is the kingdom. Listen to this description of what this means from the book called Victorious Praying. If Jesus is truly Lord of his coming kingdom, then he is Lord of every thought and action. Lord to send and Lord to stay. Lord in speaking, in writing, and in giving. Lord in all things to obey. Lord of all there is of me now and evermore to be. Right? He's Lord of everything. So that's your kingdom. Now we move on to yours is the power. Now, we said that uh, part of what that means that for God to be king, Jesus to be king, is that he is sovereign. But sovereignty and omnipotence, all powerfulness, go together, right? You can't be sovereign over everything if you don't have the power to oversee everything, right? This is why as parents, sometimes it's a terrible feeling. You make a promise and you intended to keep it, but you didn't have the power to keep it. Something happened and you couldn't control it. Well, God's not like that. These two, sovereignty and omnipotence, can't exist without the other. To rule and reign, God has to have power, and to reign sovereignly, he has to have all power, and the Bible is consistent on God's power. The Old Testament refers to God as almighty a ton of times in the English translation. And I didn't know this until I studied for this week. Never once is an angel or a human being referred to as almighty in the Old Testament. And so the New Testament is equally uh, clear. I'm just going to read you a few verses here. This is Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's Jesus. 
Romans 1, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You are without excuse to be able to see that there is a God. Revelation 19, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. And in my translation, almighty is capitalized. That's his title. Now, here's something to think on when it comes to God's power. Since God is omnipotent, he can do anything as easily as anything else, right? He can do anything as easily as he can do anything else. That's not true for us, but with God, anything he does is done without real effort. He's omnipotent. He has unlimited strength. And so when we pray yours is the power, we are declaring that God can do anything that he wills. And so if we don't believe this, why would you pray? If you don't think God could actually do what you're asking him to do and change you into what you're asking him to change you into, why are you praying? It's futile. If he's not omnipotent, our prayers are just exercises in religious futility. All six of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer that we've been through require an omnipotent God. So yours is the power that's truly believed. It brings a real deep dependence on him, right? Because what, what are you saying? I don't have the power, but yours is the power. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity in John 15 said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. That's profoundly true. But the converse of that is true as well, right? With God, all things are possible, right? But we've used this example before, but um, this has happened a number of times. Anybody that's been around little kids or had kids or worked in the nursery or whatever, they always want to help you with stuff that they actually can't really help you with. Like, Dad, can I help you move the couch? And you're like, yeah, sure, come on. They're not holding anything up, right? But they're with you. And you, as a good parent, invite them to come along with you and do the thing that is right to do in that moment along with them, even though you have the power to do it. And this is God, our good father, inviting us into his work that really he has the power to do, but that we can do along with him. And so when we pray, yours is the power, all power is yours. We're saying we are dependent on you, God. I can't do this. That's the reflex of the heart that's begun to be transformed by the realities in the Lord's Prayer. And so now we get to the final little declaration. Yours is a glory forever. Now, when we think of glory, usually we think of it in two categories, both of which are right. The first one we kind of think of, you might call his Shekinah glory. That's like the, the Bible word for sort of the radiance of his beauty. And right, this is describing the glory of God is like, for those of you who are musicians in here, describing the tone of a guitar. Uh, it sounded kind of bright and shiny, or it kind of sounded round and, and fat, right? It, like, that doesn't make much sense unless you have experience with that. And describing the glory of God is a little bit like that. It's the fullness of his beauty, his shining existence that's beyond comparison. That kind of glory, unless you have experience, is difficult uh, to, it's difficult to explain when you have had experience. It's pretty impossible to understand if you haven't had experience with it. This is the glory that Moses only got to see sort of the afterglow of as God covered him with his hand as his glory passed him by, right? Uh, Moses said, God, I want to see your glory. And God's like, well, 
You'll die if I show you the full thing. You can't handle it. So let me just cover your face and hide you in this rock and pass by you. And you can catch a little bit of the afterglow and be changed forever. And so the glory that momentarily flowed through Jesus, this, this Shekinah glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, which it says that made Jesus' face shine like the sun and his clothing became bright with, with white light. But then secondly, when we think of glory, we think of honor and, and majesty, right? That kind of glory. Both of these are right and both of these belong infinitely to God. But then this declaration of glory gets actually intensified, right? Because it adds the word forever. Yours is the glory forever. How long is forever? Right? We can't grasp it. When I was in, in student ministry at a previous church, I remember a kid said, well, like, eternity is like the internet. And I was like, yeah, you're kind of right. I don't know where it ends. And so that's a, a good way to think about it, maybe for our modern minds. The word forever, uh, in order to grasp it, we need to understand a little bit of the ancient language here, actually. See, when we say yours is the glory forever, we're not talking about a static experience that goes on forever. Uh, the Greek translated forever literally uh, reads into the ages. But the Hebrew idea as opposed to the Greek idea of a timeless state, is an eternity of unfolding ages. And so we declare in faith, yours is the glory forever, because the ultimate glory throughout all the unfolding ages of time that are to come will always be God's glory. And because of what Jesus has done for us, and if you don't catch anything else today, catch this, because of what Jesus has done for us, you, if you trust in him and his blood has been shed on your behalf, will share in that glory, which is wild to think about. Wild to think about. You don't deserve to share anything of God's glory, and yet God loved you and sent his son for you so that you could share in his glory forever. And so as we, um, what, what's, we think about that, what's the result of that? 2 Corinthians 4, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. Oh, I should have heard some amens on that, right? We know that experience. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction. Now remember who wrote this. The Apostle Paul wrote this. He had been through some light momentary affliction, right, if you know his story. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing, us for, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Here's the word picture I like to give. How many of you skinned your knee when you were a kid? You don't remember it, right? Maybe you remember one really bad one, but you don't really remember it. Why? Because it's become irrelevant in your good experiences of life up to this point. Now, magnify that times eternity. Everything you deal with suffering-wise here, right? And when a kid skins their knee, it's suffering for them, right? It's real in that moment. So this is not to downplay the suffering that many of us are dealing with in this life. But when we get to eternity, that's going to be so good that this won't, we won't even think about that. That this won't even be worthy to be compared. And so as we remember that, that his is the glory, what we're called to do is to get our eyes off of the temporal things of, of this moment and to seek the things that are eternal, namely, as Jesus calls us to, his kingdom, right? Jesus said, seek 
first the kingdom and all these other things, that's all the things we seek first, will be added to you. Seek first his kingdom, and then this other stuff will kind of take care of itself, Jesus says. Now, we said at the start of the series that what Jesus is doing here is giving us an example for prayer that calls us towards becoming the kind of people who pray this way. I always want you to see that behind the exhortations and the commands of God in Scripture. They're always aimed at calling you towards becoming the kind of person for whom that is easy because you've been transformed by his spirit. And so this doxology at the end here is the response to this way of prayer that is the evidence that this transformation is happening. If you pray the Lord's Prayer with your heart in it, your face turned towards God, and at the end, all you can do is say, man, God, yours is a kingdom and yours is the power, yours is the glory forever, amen, God. That's evidence that you're being transformed into the kind of person for, who, who prays the way that Jesus taught us to pray. So to, to declare yours is the glory forever and then to say amen, which is the Hebrew way of saying let it be so or so be it, is a declaration of the transformation that Jesus is doing in your life. If you ever have a question like, man, I don't know, am I even saved, Lord, am I following you? And you begin to pray and what comes out of you is some version of praise that is the Holy Spirit testifying to your spirit that you are his child. That's what this doxology is. Here, So the, the amen here is more than a simple ending to a prayer. It is a confident expression that yours is the kingdom and yours is the power and yours is the glory now and forever. It is a word of faith and it is a word of conviction wrapped up into a word of praise. And so my prayer for us is that we would be the kind of people who live into this kind of confidence in him and in what he is doing in us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time when we can come and we can taste just a little shadow of your glory and your kingdom and your power as we gather together. And as we look around this room and we see the faces of redemption, we hear the sound of your redeeming work in the world as we sing together and as we hear one another. Father, we thank you that we got to hear one another pray. We got to hear some of our kids pray. Lord, that is a blessing that we don't take for granted. And so as we go out from here, as we wrap up this time studying uh, this prayer for this, this season, Lord, would you just make it uh, a reminder to us that we continually come back to this idea of walking with Jesus and learning to pray as he uh, would lead us to pray. And so we ask that you be with us as we uh, finish our time together in the next few minutes and as we go out after that. And we pray all this in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.